So today I'm talking about Much Ado About Nothing. So Much Ado About Nothing was written in 1598-9 and first published in 1600. I'm going to talk a little bit about that first quarto publication in 1600. Then, of course, it's included in the folio in 1623. As you almost certainly know, it's a romantic comedy with two pairs of lovers, the rebarbative and reluctant Beatrice and Benedict, and the soppier, more conventional Hero and Claudio. The play's villain, Don John, attempts to interrupt the courtship of Hero and Claudio and almost brings about disaster. His machinations, however, are foiled by some unlikely comedy watchmen to bring about play's happy ending. And the question I want to use to focus the discussion of the play today is, why does everyone believe Don John? So, let me just start with some analysis of what Don John does in this play. He enters in Act 1, Scene 1, where his stage direction is, uncompromisingly, John the Bastard. We'll come back to the Bastard bit later. He's silent throughout that scene, until he is welcomed by Leonardo, to which he replies simply, I thank you, I am not of many words, but I thank you. Leonardo suggests that there has been bad blood between Don John and his legitimate brother, Don Pedro, but that they are now reconciled. Two scenes later, we see Don John in full villainous mode, uh, alone with his um, Uh, companions, his kind of henchmen, again defined by a kind of saturnine melancholy, claiming his sadness is without limit. Don John, interestingly, commits himself to a radical policy of self-disclosure, very much in contrast to Shakespearean characters who say they are not what they are or they are not what they seem. I'll talk a bit more about that later. Don John instead says says that he, he is incapable of looking like something he isn't. He's incapable of dissimulation. I cannot hide what I am. Completely different from all those characters who tell us all the time that they are hiding what they are, uh, either because they're in disguise or because their inner self, uh, as in Hamlet, can't be be expressed. Uh, I cannot hide what I am, says Don John. I must be sad when I have cause and smile at no man's jests. So he's a curious kind of villain, that's to say, since he's characterised by disclosure rather than by concealment. I am a plain-dealing villain, he tells his henchman, Conrad. So news arrives to Don John that Claudio, described as Don Pedro's right hand, is to be married. Don John sees that this may prove food to my displeasure, That young startup, he says, it's a great phrase for Claudio, the young startup. That young startup hath all the glory of my overthrow. If I can cross him any way, I bless myself every way. Kind of echo of Shylock there in a way. Uh, I'll think more perhaps about what comic villains do uh, in these plays in a minute. That young startup hath all the glory of my overthrow. If I can cross him any way, I bless myself every way. Now, what's interesting to me about that is it establishes Don John's behaviour within a network of rivalrous male relationships, and that's going to be an important theme that I'm trying to think about in this lecture. I think, in fact, this is a whole play structured by male relationships, even as 
romantic comedy and the genre of romantic comedy encourages us to think that it's about men and women. Don Pedro has told Claudio that he will woo Hero on his behalf, part of the play's notable pattern of substituting male-male relationships for male-female ones. And we see that the wooing of Hero is a negotiation between Claudio, Don Pedro and Leonardo. Hero herself barely figures and barely speaks. So if the marriage of Claudio and Hero is seen in the play as the key to securing this network of male relationships, the relationship between Claudio, Don Pedro and Leonardo, so too undoing that relationship is also figured as the assertion of masculine bonds. At the ball, Don John pretends he thinks the masked Claudio is in fact Benedict. The whole of the masked ball is about people who are in disguise thinking they are impenetrably in disguise uh, and people who are uh, looking at them seeing immediately who they are. And it's a very odd kind of, very odd sense of disguise that the people who are in disguise think nobody knows who I am and everybody else thinks, yeah, yeah, you're Benedict, you're Claudia. So Don John is absolutely clear uh, who, who he's talking to just so as Beatrice is and uh, Margaret is in that same scene. So he, he pretends he thinks that the masked Claudio is in fact Benedict and pretends to him in that pretense that Don Pedro is really wooing Hero for himself. As you can see, it's a fiendishly clever device. Don John is a real criminal mastermind here. <laughs> Claudio's response is extremely reliable. He immediately believes that this must be true. Tis certain so. The prince woos for himself. But he follows this quickly with the reassuring certainty that this doesn't mean that Don Pedro has behaved badly. No, not at all. Beauty is a witch against whose charms faith melteth into blood. Beauty is a witch against whose charms faith melteth into blood. It's already, that's to say, hero's fault. Now this particular piece of misinformation is quickly delivered and quickly cleared up. But Don John is not defeated. Any impediment to him, to Claudio, will be medicinable to me, he says. So next time round, the proposed impediment to Hero and Claudio's marriage is more sophisticated, although actually it can't be said to come from Don John himself. The plot is outlined to him by his servant Baraccio, who has an understanding of some sort with Margaret, Hero's gentlewoman. It's a simple plot. Don John will bring Claudio and Don Pedro to see a kind of dumb show at Hero's window in which she is apparently in an assignation with a secret lover. Don John tells Claudio that his lady is disloyal, promises to show him the proof, and both Claudio and Don Pedro agree that they will go to see this uh, terrible faithlessness enacted. If I see anything tonight why I should not marry her, vows Claudio, tomorrow in the congregation where I should wed, there will I shame her. Don Pedro agrees. The relationship, of course, between Claudio, Claudio and Hero is in fact really a relationship between Claudio and Don Pedro. And as I wooed for thee to obtain her, I will join with thee to disgrace her. There is not any whisper of suspicion about why Don John should, 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 should so trouble himself uh, to reveal something to help uh, Claudio or Don Pedro, nor does anybody recall anything uh, about the past uh, which might lead them to think that Don John's motives are not uh, entirely helpful. 
even though the play still calls him bastard, an identity which has clear ethical connotations in this period, as we can see from Edmund in King Lear, the characters seem entirely to have forgotten this legible marker of what he is like. Uh, that may be something to do with um, the way the text works. So I already said that when Don John comes in, right in the first act of the play, he's called bastard in the stage direction. But he isn't called, uh, he isn't identified as illegitimate in the uh, speeches of the play, in the words of the play, uh, until Act 4. There may be a difference between what we expect in, in, in reading, perhaps, and, and what's made clear to us on the stage. So you can see why the question around which I wanted the lecture to focus arises. Given that Don John scarcely troubles to hide that he is malevolent, given that he bears the useful shorthand bastard as part of his name throughout the play, and given that his first attempt to prevent Claudio's marriage fails, why do Claudio and Don Pedro believe him so implicitly? Let's step back for a minute from the potential psychology of that question, we'll come back to that, to think a bit more generically. The Roman new comedy on which Shakespeare often bases his own comic drama has, as we've discussed before in these lectures, a prominent role for a blocking figure, an anti-comic figure, somebody who is interrupting comic progress. Usually a patriarch or a similar role, someone who does not want the young couple to get married. We can see, for example, how this might operate in Midsummer Night's Dream or in Two Gentlemen of Verona or in The Merchant of Venice. In all these plots, the circumvention of a father figure who doesn't want the marriage to go ahead is a significant part of the plot. In Much Ado About Nothing, that blocking figure is displaced. Leonardo, the patriarch, could not be happier that his daughter is to be married off to Claudio. It's part of the way in which he's actually a rather ineffectual figure in the play, that he can't even take on the role that the comedy ought to give him, someone who is slowing down courtship or saying, uh, just a minute, let's, let's, let's wait and see, or I don't approve, or taking up that blocking role. What that leaves is a gap for blocking, a, a, a gap for the figure who is blocking, and Don John takes up that gap. He fills up the space with a kind of lateral blocking figure, and I think it's Don John's rivalries with other men that form the ultimate challenge to the plot's heterosexual conclusion. I'll, I'm going to say more about that. We might observe, though, in passing, that Much Ado About Nothing is probably the first of Shakespeare's plays, Shakespeare's comic plays, where a crucial blocking element is actually psychological rather than circumstantial. Nothing and no one is stopping Beatrice and Benedict from getting together. In fact, quite the opposite. The play is a kind of anti-blocking and it's trying to bring them together. The obstacle that needs to be overcome in that case is an internal rather than an external one. It's something to do with their characters. So Don John takes up the blocking role and that suggests that he is believed because the play needs a blocking figure. Otherwise, marriages happen too quickly. We've discussed before in other plays, delay and deferral, interruption, are necessary to plotting. Otherwise, things, uh, th things aren't spread out across five acts. Partly, it's Don John's function to provide that delay. So if blocking figures are conventional parts of comic structure, Shakespeare gives Don John a role rather different from that he found in his sources. The tale of the slandered but virtuous woman is a popular trope 
in early modern literature. But plots uh, that, that may, may have influenced Shakespeare in writing Much Ado About Nothing, plots from Ariosto's Orlando Furioso and the English translations and spin-offs of that plot all tend to suggest that at the core of this deception plot is a male jealousy over women. To put it another way, what the sources show us is a Don John figure rejected by Hero who therefore seeks to destroy her reputation. So Don John's motivation is sexual jealousy. Uh, if he is not going to have her, he is going to spoil her reputation uh, and spoil uh, her for her chosen lover. Now Shakespeare enjoys these plots of male rivalry over women. We see almost the same plot in Two Gentlemen of Verona and in Two Noble Kinsmen. And in fact, you know, clearly the titles of those plays suggest that that male rivalry is the, is the crucial dynamic uh, in them. But he isn't giving us one of those plots here. We don't get male rivalry over a single woman in Much Ado About Nothing, as we did in the sources. George Bernard Shaw called Don John a true natural villain, having no motive in this world except sheer love of evil. Having no motive in this world except sheer love of evil. Anticipating, therefore, Iago, or perhaps more precisely, recalling Coleridge's famous description of Iago as motiveless malignity. But I actually think that motive in Don, jo in Don John's case is not, in fact, entirely absent. Don John gives us a plot in which the rival object of desire is not female, but male. It is Claudio, or through him Don Pedro, that Don John wants to harm. It is male bonds that he seeks perversely to affirm. Hero is of no interest to him whatsoever. She is the means, not the object. Now, I don't mean by stressing this to suggest a particular issue about sexuality in this play, although I do think Shakespeare is deeply interested in issues of homoeroticism, and we could argue about that in relation uh, to Much Ado About Nothing. But there are problems with this kind of line of argument. The questions which are often asked about Don John's more effective avatar, Iago, which put villainy and sexuality together, which try to explain Iago's motives uh, because of uh, some aspect of same-sex desire. These are troubling ideologically, aren't they? Because they say that how you explain um, pathological villainy is to say that it's somehow homosexual in nature. So you've made an ideological gain by saying, look, there were gay people in Shakespeare's plays. That is a gain. But if you say, look, there were terribly bad you know, criminal, psychopathic gay people in Shakespeare's plays, in some ways you haven't ideologically made the game that you might have thought. It's a bit of an own goal. So I think homosocial bonds in this play, homosocial bonds, okay, so bonds which are about a primary effective attachment between men, not necessarily uh, what we would see as homosexuality, is what's being repeatedly invoked. And that it's these homosocial bonds that conspire to produce the play's real blocking structure. I think Don John's behaviour, therefore, is thus explicitly related to the play's wider depiction of male relationships and the threat these pose to comic resolution in marriage. All of Shakespeare's comedies dramatise the developmental movement by which young people forgo primary attachments to their own sex in favour of a romantic attachment to an opposite-sex partner. 
Because romantic comedies on the early modern stage are directed towards the education of men, it's interesting that for us rom-com is a, is a kind of entirely feminised genre, but really on the Elizabethan stage it must have been largely directed at men. The number of women who went to the theatre in that period is really quite, so far as we know, quite small. Shakespeare's writing these plays for a predominantly male audience, and therefore it's male relationships, the necessity of breaking male relationships that's particularly dramatised. That's what's happening in the last scene of Merchant of Venice, in which Portia makes Bassanio squirm about just what happened to his wedding ring. Uh, she's, uh, sh she's tussling with, uh, implicitly with Antonio over where Bassanio's main, uh, main allegiance lies. This toggling between male friendship and marriage is the main theme, as I've already said, of two gentlemen and of two noble kinsmen. And it's one way, as I suggested in my lecture on Twelfth Night, of thinking about the relationship between Viola as Cesario and Orsino, why that never fully sorts itself out or straightens out in the end, why Viola never comes back in female clothes, why Orsino never calls her Viola and so on. Uh, that might suggest that uniquely in Shakespeare's comedies, Orsino does not have to choose between a female lover and a male best friend since Cesario Viola provides both. But nowhere in the plays, I think, is the drama of the male-male to male-female transition more explicitly pointed than in Much Ado. After spending more than half the play flirting and bantering while arguing that they cannot stand each other, Beatrice and Benedict finally acknowledge their feelings together as they are alone in the shock of Hero's broken nuptials. I protest I love thee, says Benedict. I was about to protest I loved you, replies Beatrice. Just as each one makes themselves vulnerable to the other, there comes immediately a terrible choice. Come, bid me do anything for thee, offers Benedict in the heady expansiveness of acknowledged love. Beatrice's reply is deadly. Kill Claudio. To be sure, the plot has made this explicable. It's just shown why Claudio's behaviour is such that Beatrice might want Benedict to kill him. But we could actually try and reverse the causal relationship. The plot here is the vehicle for making Benedict break with Claudio. That's the most important thing, rather than the other way around. To be with Beatrice means killing Claudio. Benedict's realisation and reluctant acceptance of this is sharp, but it's not unprecedented in the play. That romance and marriage signal an end to certain sorts of male relationship is part of the wistfulness of the play from the beginning. The military camaraderie outside of the play is replaced within it by the merry war of words between Beatrice and Benedict. Violent plots and ambushes are recast in the play's comic repeated tropes of overhearing and overseeing. In the final episode of the long-running television romantic comedy Friends, the establishment of heterosexual coupledom, which will bring narrative closure, finally, after all those series, is simultaneously seen to cut out same-sex friendships. Their loss is symbolised by an extended sequence in the final episode in which the table football, which has been such a prominent feature of the guy's apartment, do none of you ever watch E4, it's on all the time still, um, um, uh, is, is, is being dismantled. It's a symbol of a, kind of a, ma a male world, a male bonding period uh, being over. And it's a sad, it's a kind of poignant uh, moment. Something similar happens in Much Ado. 
although not with the table football. From the beginning of the play, problems emerge among the men as they shift their interest from masculine friendship to romance. We have seen how, under provocation from Don John, Claudio suspects that Don Pedro is wooing Hero for himself. Benedict bemoans Claudio's moonish preference for the effeminate tabor and pipe and his new doublet over drum and fife and good armour. So this is a cl clearly uh, a distinction between the feminised interests and feminised uh, peaceful pursuits that Claudio the lover likes as opposed to Claudio uh, the soldier. Shakespeare will return to this theme, the theme of broken, of powerful uh, but broken male friendships uh, and how they articulate against relationships with women in another play set, like Much Ado, in Sicily, which shares many themes with Much Ado, The Winter's Tale. Powerful male friendship between Leontes and Polixenes is again seen to be ruptured by the intrusion of the female. Like Hero, that's to say, Hermione may be the means to express jealousy as a relationship between men rather than a relationship between men and women. Now, I've talked before about the way the teleology of Shakespeare's plays is sometimes underinvested in their conclusions. The plays don't want to get to the end. They know that if they're negotiating with an ending, uh, which is a closing down or, or, or a kind of compromise of the issues uh, and, and the, the drama that the play has mobilised. Endings often register in Shakespeare something of that sadness that Frank Commode sees as the sense of an ending, intrinsic to narrative structure. I think in Much Ado we might see a slightly modified structure in which the romantic comedy plot ending, the ending in marriage, is placed under sustained threat by the play's ongoing commitment to male bonding. What prevents the lovers from being together, or what attempts to prevent that, is a strongly fought preference for male company and for male society that the play, like Don John himself, cannot quite let go of. Male bonding retains a perverse hold over the men of the play. It offers them a last excuse not to get married. It must be significant that Don John intervenes uh, the night before Claudio is due to get married. It's the very last moment, really, when that kind of intervention uh, might work. So this must be, I think, why Don John is believed. Like Othello, which retells the plot of Much Ado, but lets its implicit misogyny triumph, I think the difference between Othello and Much Ado we might see as being uh, Iago's increased effectiveness. He's learned from Don John uh, and, and is a more serious threat. So like Othello, this is a play in which men are automatically believed over, woman, over women, bros before hoes. The military context of both plays, I think, is important in this regard. And when Claudio accuses Hero before her father at the altar, he does so in terms of sexual disgust, which identify marriage primarily as a relation between men. Give not this rotten orange to your friend, he tells Leonardo. The shame is the broken contract between male friends rather than the broken marriage between the man and woman. We can see in that scene that Leonardo immediately believes his daughter's accuser crying out in an ecstasy of shame that it is as vehement as it is short-lived. Do not live, hero, do not ope thine eyes. Only Beatrice believes implicitly in her cousin's honesty. And perhaps it's worth observing here 
the one character who is absent from this scene in which sexual politics are at their most tribal. It's striking that Shakespeare seems originally to have conceived of a role for Hero's mother in this play, and he went so far as to give her a name, Inogen, which is registered in some stage directions in the quarter of 1600, uh, particularly in the, in the opening stage direction where she enters with uh, Leonardo, uh, Beatrice and Hero. And if you're interested in the role of mothers in Shakespeare, this silenced character who never, never speaks and who most editors just excise, just think is a kind of uh, a mistake, a ghost character, it's, it's quite an interesting uh, example, an interesting test case. So Imogen never speaks, most, and most scholars assume that during the course of writing the play, her role atrophied and was no longer relevant, but that somehow Shakespeare didn't go back and cross it out uh, from the beginning. The stage directions are seen, therefore, to register an earlier remnant of the drafting process, uh, what editors call rather, um, uh, rather resonantly, I think, ghost characters. But whatever the reasons, part of the effect of the excision of Inogen, Hero's mother, is, of course, to isolate the two young women of the play and to accentuate their vulnerability to essentially patriarchal structures. It's tantalising to wonder how Inogen's presence in this scene might have shifted the balance of power in the scene of her daughter's denunciation. And in fact, in the source, uh, source stories, uh, the mother figure is quite active uh, in this process, and that makes the women less, um, uh, look, look less vulnerable to a more sort of homogenous patriarchy. Josie Rourke's 2009 production of the play with Catherine Tate and David Tennant did something with this by shifting the role of Antonio, Leonardo's brother, into a female part, Antonia. So although the straightforwardness of relationships between men is irreparably damaged in this play, it could be argued that this sense of male camaraderie in fact prevails, even beyond the repaired marriages. Much Ado is a play profoundly uneasy about female sexuality. Leonardo begins with a joke about whether he is really Hero's father, answering Don Pedro's innocent, I think this is your daughter, with the entirely unnecessary, her mother hath many times told me so. And even after Hero's infidelity has been revealed as a piece of Don John's Machiavellian theatre, these jokes about cuckoldry, and I think cuckoldry, like I'm arguing about jealousy, it's very clearly a relationship between men in which women are the means by which a relationship between men is, is affirmed and, and, uh, and modified. It's men who cuckold other, other men, not really women. So cuckoldry is a relationship between men. Even after, even after Hero's infidelity has been revealed as, as untrue, the jokes about cuckoldry are still the currency of male interchange. Prince, thou art sad, Benedict notes of the redundant matchmaker Don Pedro, Get thee a wife. There is no staff more reverend than one tipped with horn. It's significant that the play's last lines equate marriage with the inevitability of female unfaithfulness. So to be married uh, is, to always, is always to be cuckolded, is always to have these horn jokes hanging around you. Even though we've seen that these attitudes have been so dangerous uh, and so unfair in the preceding scenes. But the play's very last lines, however, turn back to Don John, taken in flight and brought with armoured men back to Messina. Some productions bring him on stage at this final point to show that his malignancy has been curtailed and cont contained. But I think Don John merely represents 
a more general mistrust in the play. He is not its sole source. He might be a kind of scapegoat, uh, but he certainly isn't uh, the sole source. After all, his is a, a tiny part in the play. He has only 4% of the lines, but really he represents something much larger than himself, and this may be why he is given the identity of bastard. His own malevolent illegitimacy might be thought a kind of walking proof that women can, and some do, sleep with men who are not their husbands. He is the proof that stabilises the play's paranoia about women's unfaithfulness. He seems the kind of object lesson that this really does happen, and look what it produces. So his status as a bastard thus confirms the play's worst fears. He secures the relevance of his own brand of misogyny and suspicion of women, embodying the play's pornographic voyeurism and promising to show us the nightmarish but titillating sequence of women's infidelity. Now, interestingly, the scene in which Don John shows Don Pedro and Claudio the illicit encounter at Hero's window is not depicted in the play. We go straight from the tight-jawed response of Claudio and Don Pedro that I've already quoted to Don John's summons to see... Sorry, the tight-jawed response to his summons to see what's happening into a scene in which the comic watch led by Dogbury do some inept training onto a scene in which Hero is getting ready for her marriage back to Dogbury and from thence to the chapel where the marriage is to take place. So there's no... um, The play never shows us the scene at Hero's window. There's no practical reason not to show us this pivotal scene. It could easily make use of the upper stage, rather like Juliet's balcony, for example. It's not a very demanding scene to stage in in theatrical terms. It's also, interestingly, quite a prominent feature of many of the prose sources uh, for the play, where ladders or um, a sort of careful choreography of how the lover gets to the window uh, or how they see what's happening is, is really quite important. Uh, in that the way this, this scene is told. So uh, the window scene itself seems one constant in the versions of this story as it's transmitted across languages and genres. So why would Shakespeare cho- choose not to show it us? It's a general question, in fact, about when Shakespeare chooses to tell us things rather than show them. And only in a tiny minority of cases is it, I think, because it would be too difficult to show them. The stage is not capable of showing them. It seems much more often to be a kind of thematic... Uh, uh, suggestion and also perhaps um, a a way of putting um, what's being shown uh, what's not being shown rather what's being told under it's sort of in quotation marks it may not actually be true if you think about maybe the beginning of um, Julius Caesar where off stage we hear the crowd cheering off stage uh, and they're cheering to supposedly to make Caesar accept the crown but we never see that so we don't know whether when Caesar refuses the crown He refuses it because he really doesn't want to be king or he refuses it saying, go on, ask me again, I really do want to be king. That's a sort of microcosm of the way that whole play, Julius Caesar, is very unclear about whether the justification for killing Caesar is ever ever really made. So showing and telling are always interesting and they have very rarely, I think, to do uh, with the actual practical resources of the stage. It's worth thinking what happens when we do see the scene in productions because this can help us understand what it's like when it's not there. Broadly speaking, I think those theatrical and film productions of Much Ado About Nothing, like Josie Rourke's or like Branagh's film version, those versions which want a happy ending for the play tend to show us the window scene. They tend to depict what Shakespeare doesn't and show us seeing what 
Don Pedro and Claudio C. In part, it seems, these kinds of productions want to suggest that this has been a plausible mistake, that Don John's scene was convincing, that any reasonable person would have jumped to the same conclusion as Claudio, and that therefore Claudio's acceptance of what he sees should not reflect too badly on him. When we see what he sees or thinks he sees and recognise that it is a convincing piece of stage business, we feel that he cannot be blamed too harshly for his conduct. So this is an interpretation of the play which uh, is usually accompanied by lots of other cuts or interpolations, a scene perhaps in which Claudio's own mental anguish and repentance is somehow conveyed. It's one thing we never get in Shakespeare's play. Claudio is never really uh, given the chance to say that he, is, that he is sorry about what has happened. So in Josie Rourke's production, Claudio spent a night in Hero's Monument listening to nihilistic rock music, necking bourbon and threatening to kill himself until a vision of Hero persuaded him uh, that it was worth living. Or we might think of the bobblingly adolescent Adam's apple of Robert Sean Leonard in Branagh's film, showing his extreme youth, for instance, which is another way of uh, justifying or excusing uh, this terrible mistake. So positive readings of the end of the play, in which Hero forgives Claudio and their interrupted marriage is resumed, also tend to cut speeches in which uh, Claudio and Don Pedro banter with unseemly jocularity with Leonardo and Antonio after Hero's presumed death. Okay, so, the, so the showing of the window scene, the depiction of the window scene, is part of a whole package of things about the end of the play, which I think are done in production to try and make the Hero-Claudio relationship uh, redeemable, uh, uh, recognisably redeemable for us as, as audience members. Now, as Shakespeare has actually written the play without the scene at Hero's window, Claudius's readiness to believe Don John goes unsupported, and his response to what he believes he has seen seems even more harsh. And in this, I think Shakespeare does depart decisively from his sources. Claudio is a much more compromised figure than the lovers uh, in, in the equivalent uh, stories that Shakespeare had read. Claudio chooses, as he promised, to shame Hero on her wedding day and to reject her without confronting her with his suspicions. It's a way in which the play is extremely difficult for modern audiences, even as Beatrice and Benedict have seemed to be the quintessentially modern Shakespearean couple. When the BBC Shakespeare Retold updated Much Ado in 2005 to a contemporary newsroom setting, which worked surprisingly well, B and Ben were the news anchors, Claude on the sports desk, Hero was a weathercaster, which is a brilliant piece of, piece of casting. I think Hero would be a brilliant kind of weather, weather girl with all the... Uh, kind of sexist uh, implications of that. Everything worked, except the career girl hero taking Claude back at the end. The BBC gave us the following dialogue. Uh, Claude, maybe you would think about carrying on where we left off. Hero, what? Get married to you. Never in a million years. Claude, okay, maybe not in the short term. So that was the one thing about updating the play to a modern context which seemed impossible, that hero would take back Claudio. That's my point there. But however imperfect and fearful a prospect, marriage is, as Benedict ruefully acknowledges, a social inevitability. The world must be peopled. Marriage in Shakespeare's comedies functions, as we know, to regulate and to legitimate sexual desire. It's the proper outlet for sexual energy. 
And as in a Hollywood screwball comedy like Bringing Up Baby or His Girl Friday, the interplay, the verbal interplay between Beatrice and Benedict functions as a kind of foreplay. We know they ought to get together, we know they just need a little help. But it's striking in the play how much social pressure exists to resolve these two confirmed singletons into a couple. Something about their refusal to do the conventional thing is an inadmissible challenge uh, to everyone else in the play. Everybody uh, takes the fact that they say they don't want to be together uh, as throwing down the gauntlet to make them uh, do so. It's like the labours of Hercules, Don Pedro says. The world of Messina is one in which private actions and individual behaviours are all closely monitored. Almost everything in the play is overlooked or overheard. Even our presence as the audience might be another level of the surveillance culture which governs social codes and which sacrifices privacy in the play. It's a kind of comic Sicilian 1984. And the means by which romantic resolution are achieved in the play are remarkably similar in type, if not in motive, to those of Don John. That's to say, both the plot that wants to spoil the marriage of Hero and Claudio and the plot that wants to bring Beatrice and Benedict together use exactly the same device, setting up a scene which uh, the characters overhear or oversee, uh, thinking that they're seeing something which is just happening authentically, when in fact they're seeing something which has been set up entirely for their benefit. We can also think that these scenarios which are manufactured are created expressly to transmit particular information and in some ways socially coercive information. Beatrice hears herself accused of pride and scorn in her refusal to marry. We might recollect that choosing to remain single is never an option for women in Shakespeare's comedies. If we think of Olivia in Twelfth Night or Isabella in Measure for Measure or Katerina in The Taming of the Shrew, these are all women who, who, who proclaim at the beginning of the plays that they do not want to get married and the plays seem to go into a kind of plot paroxysm to make sure that they are. The scene in which Beatrice hears her faults enumerated by her cousin is therefore the flip side of the imagined scene of Hero's balcony transgression. Each is drawing on a norm of femininity or a kind of a stereotype of femininity that it's trying to bring the play's real characters uh, back towards. If you look at Hero's self-abnegation in the scene at the end of the play where she accepts Claudia once again as her husband, you can see that she, 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 she says that she has learned her lesson from an act that she never in fact committed. Um, Hero seems to uh, agree that she was uh, somehow tainted and that she needed to die uh, and, and be reborn in order to be cleansed of that. So she seems to take on the charge uh, of, of Claudia's suspicion even though we know uh, she was blameless. So Don John is believed by the characters and I think in some sense by the plot of Much Ado because two contesting storylines run through the play. One is one that tries to reinstate and consolidate male bonds. That's a plot which is really uh, implicitly anti-comic and one that breaks up those bonds into marriage, i.e. a plot which conforms to comic necessity. Don John spins the play towards tragedy and momentarily the play seems as if it might obey, bringing out a friar and a crazy plan to pretend a woman was dead that was so successful in the popular Romeo and Juliet, already well known by the time of Much Ado. Like other villains, and not just in comedy, that's to say, Don John represents an alternative worldview 
from that which comes to dominate at the end of the play. But they, the fight over uh, a male world and a, an, and a kind of a romantic world uh, is sufficiently strong for us to feel that Don John's view has at least some traction on the play's psyche. The play's men are anxious for the excuse that lets them off the obligation and commitment of marriage. Don John proffers that excuse. So, if that's all why Don John is believed, because the play's male characters have a weakness for his particular misogynistic view of the world, and because the play itself toys with the alternative ending he dangles before it, why is he not successful? In the end, Don John's plot is foiled by the most unlikely agents, the buffoonish Dogbury, played by the Chamberlain's men's favourite clown, the actor Will Kemp, and his asinine assistants. In some ways, they are unworthy opponents. But in another way, Don John isn't really trying. Criticisms of Branagh's film adaptation, which called Keanu Reeves, who played Don John, wooden, seemed rather to miss the point. Don John is a wooden character, rather than Reeves's a wooden performance. Unlike Iago, that's to say, or even Iacimo in Cymbeline, this play is confident that comedy will have the upper hand, or rather, uh, it doesn't really invest uh, its blocking figure with sufficient agency, sufficient malevolence, sufficient secrecy, perhaps, to do his work. In the end, the misogynistic sexual fantasies about cuckoldry, adultery and voyeurism are packed away into an airbrushed happy ending. So I've been talking about Don John as the articulation of an anti-comic and a misogynistic mood in Much Ado, that the play, and more particularly its modern theatrical interpreters, this is a play firmly established in the feel-good uh, part of the Shakespearean repertoire, uh, this, is, this, this is a kind of anti-comic, misogynistic much-ado that the play and its modern in theatrical interpreters work hard to suppress. Next week I'm going to talk again about comic suppressions. Uh, I'm going to be talking about Midsummer Night's Dream. And the question I'm going to ask then is, remind me, who marries who? Thank you. <laughs>